breaking ground. Yeah, man. You're a special guy. Hanging out like <laughs> bros. The. Welcome to the Herbal Hour, the place for holistic medicine, herbalism, and all things green. Today we have with us acupuncturist, founder of the Oriental Medicine Clinic, Nesbitt Therapeutics, and my fellow colleague in the naturopathic medicine program, Grady Nesbitt. You can find him online at nesbittherapeutics.com. That's N-E-S-B-I-T-T-therapeutics.com. Hello, Grady. It's excellent to have you here. How are you doing today, sir? Hey, great to be here. Happy to be um, spending my Friday evening with a friend and colleague of mine. Yeah, it's been a long time coming for us to uh, hang out and speak philosophy outside of the classroom environment. So today uh, we're going to be talking a good amount about uh, herbalism as it relates to men's health, uh, sports medicine. We're going to be touching on what the role of holistic physicians is in the healthcare system at large. And as a special bonus for anyone listening, we're going to be talking about some tips to start your business especially if it's healthcare-related. Uh, and that's an area that many in our profession are very troubled by. Many people seeking to be natural healers, they often have difficulties with starting their business and being successful, and it's very sad. So we're going to talk about how you guys can avoid that. All right, so starting off, what really inspired you to pursue medicine? I would say it was um, kind of the culmination of a lot of experiences um, beginning in undergrad where I was a wrestler and also a rugby player and an anthropology student. Um, so I was in a good amount of pain from contact sports, uh, sought out acupuncture, and then was kind of immediately enamored with um, the cosmology that very richly underwrites uh, the tradition. So I kind of took that idea to pursue that at a later point in time and put that in my pocket and spent about five years in the world of political organizing, mm -hmm. um, got burnt out on that, saw my health deteriorate. Uh, and then, you know, a realization occurred that it was time to circle back to medicine. Um, I was kind of guided in that direction by a chiropractor and I was talking with him about my plans uh, and he mentioned naturopathic medicine, which I hadn't mm -hmm. heard of before. Um, so I was looking at various options in terms of pursuing East Asian medicine and naturopathic medicine. Um, came to know the schools out in the Pacific Northwest that mm -hmm. have such a high reputation, Bastyr, uh, NUNM. I'd always wanted to live in Seattle, so I ultimately made the decision to go to Bastyr uh, in Kenmore, Washington, which is a, a small suburb of Seattle. Mm -hmm. um, and to get to Seattle is a very roundabout 12 miles. It's the longest 12 miles on the face of the planet. Um, really? So, yeah, Seattle's a great city. The only drawback is the, the traffic. Um, but um, I, I decided to prioritize that. I was a bit more passionate about uh, the possibility of East Asian medicine. Mm -hmm. um, but being sort of our sibling school, it was I, I was kind of given the opportunity to have a long observational interview of naturopathic medicine and made the decision to eventually pursue that as well. But one thing at a time. Mm. So I understand that you started out pursuing Oriental medicine. 
Correct. What was really the thing that drew you to that um, outside of even beginning with uh, naturopathic medicine or herbalism or something like that? Um, really, the the philosophy spoke to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would hesitate to use the word metaphysical, um, mm-hmm. but in the the most fundamental component of East Asian medicine is this understanding of the the universe essentially being a product of five phases or five elements and how they are constantly interacting in terms of you know sort of a system of checks and balances um, of mutual engenderment so really mm. what the the Chinese observed however long ago um, and this this was probably um, the inception was probably thousands of years even before a written language um, to record, you know, where the earliest philosophical components come from. Um, but they, they elucidated that sort of cosmology and worldview, um, and then that gradually was refined to the point where it was sort of a cohesive um, schematic of how the universe worked. Mm. Uh, and then... You, how how those um, patterns of interaction essentially manifest in a human being and human physiology and human health and disease. Mm. For our listeners who aren't too familiar with uh, Chinese medicine and the phases, can you uh, just give a brief description of what the five phases are and how they relate to our health? Um, so starting with the wood element, um, and, and there's often visual representations of these. It's it's more specifically, it's bamboo mm. um, is often the picture that they choose, um, and it's associated with springtime. Their calendar is is doesn't align congruently with uh, the Western calendar. Mm-hmm. So basically, uh, to in Chinese culture, spring begins with the Chinese New Year. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for for Western folks, it's typically around um, the first week of February. It's usually around the Super Bowl, uh, interestingly. Um, and then that sort of spring slash wood energy um, has sort of a rising quality to it. It moves up and it moves outward. Um, and then with all the elements, there's a sort of directionality associated mm-hmm. with it. Um, so really what, what might be helpful to visualize would be... Um, if, if any listeners are familiar with the term sine wave, if you look at the, um, it's sort of an up and down uh, graph that can be used to represent basically the, the circadian rhythm of the planet, mm-hmm. like in the northern, because obviously China is in the northern hemisphere, as is um, Western civilization. Um, during the spring, after the spring equinox, you know, the, the days are lengthening. Mm-hmm. Um, and then by contrast, uh, in the fall, they're shortening. So, um, right. So that's the wood element. And from what I understand, that's related to the liver. Yep. The, I mean, so the hard organ, the liver, um, and the liver, it's called the, um, the liver organ network. So the meridian, there's a, a liver meridian specifically with all the associated points on it, but that sort of has its root, its foundation in the actual liver. And then underlying all of that, there's sort of a bioenergetic, bioelectric template um, 
roughly around the area of the liver as it's um, visualized in Western medicine, Western anatomy. I always found that particularly uh, fascinating that uh, Chinese medicine ties these elements together with different organ systems uh, and they're able to find imbalances in those organ systems and treat them uh, based on herbs that support those organ systems. And also what you were saying about how it's related to the seasons is fascinating mm -hmm. because uh, things like seasonal allergies, flu season, it's very commonly understood that uh, weather and the season affects our health, but it's not really uh, elucidated or made clear in any other medicine that I'm aware of other than Chinese medicine. So that's one phase, the wood phase, or kind of it relates to elements, the Greek element system, fire, air, water, earth. Can you tell us about the other four phases? Yeah, so the fire element is associated with summertime um, and kind of the way I visualize it. Well, first of all, there's, there's a... Um, quite a few correspondences. So the wood element is associated with the color green. The fire mm -hmm. element, unsurprisingly, is uh, associated with the color red. That makes sense. So that's one way to visualize the fire element. Mm -hmm. um, but being associated with summer, I, I like to think of it as kind of the fractalization of mm. nature. The, um, the physical forms in nature becoming their fullest. And mm. you, uh, most people who garden or work outside, probably notice that flowers, then followed by fruit, is blooming in the summertime. Right. So it's, and I mean, if we're thinking about what fruit is um, within the greater plant world, that's I've, the semen. I mean, that that is the re reproductive tissue, essentially, of the plant is reaching its maturity in the summertime. Interesting. So... How do you think that relates, that idea from kind of um, herbalism and how plants procreate during different seasons, how does that relate to things like reproductive health of males and females? Well, um, if we look at our main sort of herbal groupings, you know, we can think about seeds and flowers mm -hmm. um, kind of being one and the same. And then... Um, Bark, I mm -hmm. guess, would be a second one coming from the middle of the tree or the um, the stems, the meristems, mm -hmm. uh, and the leaves. Mm -hmm. And then finally would be the roots. So it's it's kind of um, a three-tiered um, sort of organization where you have substances coming from the upper, the middle, and the lower. Right. Uh, and one of our instructors at NUNM, Dr. Paul Kalmans, mm -hmm explains this very succinctly, but it's, it's basically the, um, it's the world tree that sort of permeates, um, basically all of the indigenous, aboriginal, um, animistic. And it, of course, we're all at some point throughout human history coming mm. from those traditions with that understanding, but it seems to be pretty remarkably consistent. Um, but long story short, so leaves, bark, stems, you know, seeds, fruit, roots, all that, all those herbs, um, any and all herbs coming from those various categories can be used to improve male vitality, female vitality, anyone's mm. overall vitality. Is it typically the roots of these plants that would be more uh, conducive to being used in like men's health, for example? Because I, uh, I remember a lot of the very classically... Uh, like male potency formulas that increase endurance, 
help with reproductive health, especially for males, are things like ginseng, and they use the root, and then there's rhodiola, um, which is adaptogenic, but also related to men's health. Um, and that's also a root. And it seems like a lot of these, uh, or even ashwagandha, right? It's the root powder that kind of helps uh, with the HPA axis, helping regulate it. But it also has a lot of effects that basically balance hormones in males and females. So do you think there's anything to that, that it's the roots that are typically used? I, I would agree with um, the observation that you're making. I mean, certainly with um, the heavier hitting, I guess you could say, adaptogens, the ones that are the best studied, uh, so Panax slash Asian ginseng, mm-hmm. um, or Panax kinkafoilus, which is American ginseng, mm-hmm. Eleuthero is a root. Right, Siberian ginseng. Yeah, I mean, well... That's an interesting one because it's not actually in the ginseng family, right? right? Yeah, and it's that's false that's why we have to call it Eleuthero nowadays because the Wisconsin ginseng farmers got... Um, they were all in a tiffy about that, so... Have you heard anything about um, these, like, ginseng wars that are going on? I've heard about them, yeah. I what mean, is it's, that? It's sad. Well, just the... So the irony is that the American ginseng, which is... Uh, more energetically cooling mm-hmm. than its Asian counterpart, which is more energetically warming. The the sort of flow of ginsengs is that Panax ginseng is coming to the west, mm-hmm. and then American ginseng, ironically, is going to the east, to mm. East Asia. Um, so basically, the, the ginseng wars that are occurring in the Appalachian U.S., um, Partially that's happening because, you know, generally speaking, that region of the country has always um, endured more economic hardship than elsewhere. Uh, so people are hard up for money or harder up, generally speaking. Mm. Um, so it's just, it's the economic opportunity that wild harvesting ginseng provides them because they can get top dollar for that product mm. because of high demand from Asia for the most mm. part. Yeah, it's amazing how... Uh, how expensive ginseng actually is. I was. It win- It ranges mm-hmm. pretty widely, honestly. I mean, I, for instance, I can order you know a high quality Asian ginseng product off of Amazon and get a two mo- or sixty capsule supply. So at minimum two months worth um, of dosing for about twenty dollars. Mm. So if you're looking at that on a daily basis, it's pretty affordable. The other thing too, as you mentioned, you know, herbs like rhodiola, ashwagandha, ginseng, eleuthero, those cover a lot of bases. Like they will certainly improve performance, but it's more accurate to think of it in terms of you're getting a lot of bang for your buck. You're getting physical performance. You're getting more endurance in the gym. In some cases, strength increases. Mm. Um, you know, your partner will be all excited in the bedroom because mm-hmm. it will give you a bit more, or not a bit more, a noticeable. Um, boost to libido and like sexual, aphrodisiac yeah I mean certainly aphrodisia um, and then pro-fertility I mean that certainly will help becoming a father or a mother um, but then cognitive performance too and then improved sleep um, just better mood overall so these cover a lot of bases these herbs particularly and yeah you're right back to your original observation they do seem to come from the root more often than not mm. there are exceptions maybe it's that that aspect is kind of uh, the storehouse of the planets where it holds all its kind of uh, nutrients and minerals and a lot of its important uh, compounds. Mm-hmm. Kind of like we do in our reproductive system. Our reproductive system is amazing because 
from everything that our bodies created, we can create another human, essentially. Everything is there. All the information, all the necessary beginning nutrients. It's pretty, uh, pretty amazing. So as far as uh, men's health, I know um, you kind of specialize a little bit in, in men's health and also like sports medicine. Is there um, any go-to herbs for men's health? There are a lot of great herbs for men's health. What are um, some of your favorites? Well, I would start. I would start honestly with Panax slash Asian ginseng. Mm-hmm. Um, that is one that I've been impressed with, uh, and and I would even say that that's one particular substance that I was so impressed with that that kind of guided me into um, uh, the career field of natural medicine. Really, um, just because. Well, Panax, the word Panax is a derivation of panacea, so cure-all. Mm, right. Um, it's uplifting to the mood. Obviously, the, the sexual function bonus is fantastic and mm. undeniable. Um, and then just in terms of measurable overall physical performance, you can go more minutes, you can do more reps, you can lift more pounds. Mm. All that is pretty much immediately obvious. Um, and it's, it's affordable. I mean, depending upon your definition of affordable, but generally speaking, it's not expensive. Right. One of those companies, uh, I forget what it's called, but they make these little mini vials of, uh, ginseng, like it's little honey ginseng vials. I know the you ones can, you're talking about. Yeah. You yeah. could buy a gigantic pack. It's in this green pack. And, uh, it's pretty interesting because if you drink one or two of those on the label, it actually says don't drink more than two per yeah. day. And when you drink two, it's like coffee, but a different kind of yeah. energy, a different kind of stimulation. It f- yeah, it feels denser and heavier. Mm-hmm. It's better grounded, I would say. Um, very heating, too. I feel it like is, it really it's energetically fires you up. Uh, it's energetically warm, but um, depending upon the preparation, like for instance, um, red ginseng uh, refers to processing as opposed to like a specific subspecies mm-hmm. or chemotype or varietal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's that it's been... Uh, cured with steam. Oh, really? So yeah, infused with a bit of heat. So it's not a different species? No. I was always under the impression that red ginseng was of a different type. Nope. Wow. Um, and it's it's more of a Korean tradition. Um, mm. And if you think, so Korean ginseng is the same as Asian ginseng. It's Panax ginseng. Mm-hmm. It's almost the like, like a premier wine region. It's like the Bordeaux of ginseng or as Bordeaux is to red wine, Korean ginseng is to Asian ginseng. Oh, that's it's, fascinating. It's, it tends to be regarded as the best terroir mm. for the cultivation of ginseng. And then it's it's more in their tradition, um, Korea specifically, mm. where red ginseng is produced. Is there uh, any type of constitution or type of person that would actually not benefit from ginseng? Well, honestly, a person like me would be said not to benefit. Really? How is that? Well, I'm energetically hot and I'm energetically on the damper side. It's not necessarily dampening, but it is moistening. No, I had an experience. Uh, I was those uh, ginseng vials. There's a period of time where I was just drinking multiple per day over a long period of time. And I'm pretty sure I was having like, I don't want to say hot flashes, but that's (laughs) what it was. Like I was like having crazy amounts of heat in my face and like uh, aggression and stuff. And I was like, I actually didn't put two and two together, but I'm actually pretty sure it was from overdoing the ginseng. Yeah. And you can overtonify with any of these adaptogens. I mean, they're, the adaptogens are strong. You can feel them. And that's part of the reason why yeah. I like them. That's, 
it's almost a good way to impress people with natural medicine. Mm, Because you're like, this works. Like, take this, you'll feel it. undeniably strong. If you get the dose right. I mean, generally, we underdose herbs. Um, right. Especially if they're not in extract form. Oh well, you got the uh, you got the homeopaths right now uh, rolling around in their graves because well, they're all about that super super low dose. That's one way to do it, and then the other way to do it would be to follow the the traditional Chinese dosing mm. guidelines. So they go pretty high, like three, five. Well, grams. they can. I mean, a daily serving of some herbs can be in the hundreds. Hundreds of grams. I mean, astragalus, the upper dosage range for astragalus, you can take 120 grams a day. Oh my god! That's. I mean, that's extreme. That's but. a lot of fiber, man. <laughs> Boil Keeps down it regular. Tea. It's a lot of. I mean, it's a lot of sweet flavors. Oh, is what it is. you you decoct it. Mm-hmm. Correct. Right? That's yeah, when that you would... uh, you add an herb, um, and you actually keep it boiling on like a roll uh, right. rolling boil instead of you know just putting boiling water right. in a tea. So good for all the listeners to know that. So that's that's the style of Chinese. The preferred dosage format for Chinese herbs is that you take your raw herbs, you let them soak for a while. Um, mm. A few hours, really. The more, the better. Yeah, um, and then bring bring things to a boil and let those simmer simmer for at least an hour. If it's a root, um, roots generally require more time to mm. decoct. Um, so Panax ginseng is. I hesitate to say the anabolic steroid of Chinese medicine. Mm. That would actually probably be more deer antler, and I can cover that momentarily because it's deer antler is very applicable to men's health. Um, but the, the active compounds as Western medicine has verified and identified, uh, ginsenicides. Mm. So those are belonging to a family of phytoandrogens. They're, yeah, essentially they're testosterone mimetics. Mm. Um, so that would explain a lot of the benefits of ginseng specifically. So the compounds, um, they mimic testosterone in the body. See, there's a lot of talk about like phytoestrogens, right? Uh, like soy is held to be a phytoestrogen, things like red clover, all these different plants. But um, there's also phytoandrogens yep, or absolutely. basically the male equivalent of those and things. And think about it. I mean, would nature produce, you know, only the female version of these sort of hormonal mimics? Yeah, that'd be really not. unfair if I was like Yeah, that. that would be totally unfair. I mean, and, you know, mother <laughs> nature and all that. But it, it doesn't make any sense that there wouldn't be any compounds in nature to stimulate androgen receptors as there are to stimulate right. estrogen receptors. What are some other herbs that are in this class of phytoandrogens? Well, um, I guess my mind would jump to epimedium, mm. also known as horny goat weed. Oh, yeah, um, I've heard that one. Well, I remember one of my Chinese professors who was an older lady um, telling the story of horny goatweed, um, and she was just, you know, very polite and grandmotherly, uh, and she couldn't even bring herself to say the actual name because oh, it was man. so vulgar. <laughs> so ba- it's yin yang huo, so it's basically um, weed that makes goats go bang bang. Essentially. <laughs> like there's, there's a little bit of college humor sort of spliced into that. <laughs> um, but it, it has kind of a, a crude tone to to the um, colloquial translation. Oh, really? That's yeah. fascinating. Is that where it got its like English name from? Horny goatweed yeah. from the translation from yeah. Chinese. Yeah, the oh, the I formal translation would be herb that causes goats to copulate excessively. <laughs> to copulate. So I like that. that's a good word. Yeah, Very I mean that leaves nothing word. to the imagination. And the story goes <laughs> that there was an er, a herder, and he was you know watching over his flock of goats or sheep or whatever they were. Um, and he noticed that after eating from this particular bush, 
Um, that's basically all he observed his goats to be doing was having sex with each other. So it was just a whole bunch of goats having sex with each other out in the field. Um, uh, that's a common saying, like, you know, someone's horny as a goat. Well, uh, horny as a goat that ate some horny goat weed. Now that's next level stuff. Next level. And, I mean, <laughs> I, I'm sure we can accurately guess what his next step was, was to try that for himself. Right. Um, but in terms of... Um, phytoandrogens, mm -hmm. a lot of people, just generally speaking, especially, you know, younger guys, um, active guys, you know, looking to improve their performance and in the gym, also in the bedroom, they're after the testosterone. They, they want to know what herbs can increase my testosterone. Right. Um, well, what if I told you, you know, exploring this concept, what if I told you that there were substances that aren't going to raise your testosterone, but are going to deliver all the benefits of, or mm. many of the benefits of testosterone and not affect your, Interesting. yeah, your own testosterone production. So these are, as you were saying, the testosterone mimicking compounds, right. not they stimulate that the it receptors. increases testosterone. In some cases they do, mm -hmm. but I think it's something that we're a little bit obsessed about. Um, right. Cause testosterone culture. is always good. It's, right. it's something that you should have and... If you're getting old and your testosterone's decreasing, well, you know, supplement testosterone. Yeah, I mean, certainly something we want to keep within a healthy range. It's it's definitely something that people overdo um, mm. with anabolic steroids. Oh well, yeah. Um, of but generally, just adding up to overall male vitality, testosterone is definitely a big component of it. Mm -hmm. um, but as far as you know being fair with our usage um, and application of these herbs, a lot of them will give many, if not all, the benefits of testosterone therapy. Really? But studies don't manage to show that they increase testosterone. Right. So that's kind of the catch-22 of it, is they're already looking for... Uh, to say that this herb is effective for this, they're looking for it to increase testosterone. Right. But what you're saying is that it has the similar effects in the body as testosterone, but it doesn't necessarily raise it. Right. Right. So the research is kind of skewed then. Yeah. I mean, sense. it's yeah, it's kind of a philosophical bias, mm -hmm. I would say. That's um, part and parcel to the whole thing. And, I'll, you know, generally speaking, that's... Um, it doesn't cast herbal medicine in a positive light. Right, because they're looking for something that they won't find. It's somewhat irrelevant. In, in I mean, sense. it is and it isn't. Mm -hmm. um, but to, to horny goat weed specifically, epimedium, um, it's, it's what's described as an adaptogen for testosterone. Mm -hmm. So there are plenty of studies showing that it does raise testosterone. Um, and it, it doesn't necessarily... Um, there's been no evidence to say that it decreases testosterone. Mm -hmm. Also, too, being an adaptogen, you know, it, it's bringing men and women, for that matter, to kind of the physiological um, desired point, the mm. optimal point, which, you know, in our modern world, because we're inundated with xenoestrogens and, you know, myriad endocrine disruptors, what's optimal in the 21st century is not what was optimal two or three or 500 right. years right so ago. things like uh, things like BPA and plastics they uh, they interrupt our hormones right. and they can act as uh, mimics or sometimes they block those receptors and like you were saying we're inundated we're just like flooded 
with all of these uh, external sources of basically hormones in our bodies. And I mean, things like factory farming of cattle, uh, they pump them up with all sorts of testosterone boosters sometimes, uh, antibiotics, whatever. It's mostly estrogen, actually. Really? Yeah. Is it estrogen that they use? Mostly estrogen, yeah, because you know the goal is to either increase milk production, and they would use prolactin wow. for that purpose, but... Yeah, just I mean, estrogen or estradiol, I think, is and some derivative of that. It's definitely not bioidentical bovine estradiol, um, but that that is a pretty potent anabolic agent as well. It just seems to have much more of a preference for building fatty tissue. Oh wow! But then you know what we're after is mm. fatty, delicious, marbled cows. So mm. male and female. And those hormones, they tend to. Um bioaccumulate or in kind fat. of yeah, concentrate in fat yeah right. so that's and yeah, they do scary. Uh, you know to some degree they they do um survive the digestive tract i mean wow. we we don't know you know to what extent specifically it's it's somewhere around three percent but yeah you're getting you're getting a good dose of estrogen synthetic estrogen do by you um beef. do you know if like grass-fed organic farmed beef uh, will have that same downside to it? Or do they typically, uh, is there any regulations where they are not allowed to use like estradiol or something or estrogen? I don't know if there's any regulation prohibiting that. I mean, just generally speaking, you know, because part of it has to do with consumer demand. I mean, my opinion is that grass-fed beef tastes a lot better than conventional beef. And the milk, too. The and milk, the, it, the, you can taste the grass in it. It's, it's awesome. something. It's Yeah, Love it's it. in the butter fat, but it's also on um, the marbled fat as well. Anyway, not, not to get off on too much of a tangent, um, but, you know, just in terms of where grass-fed beef is produced, um, you know, obviously that's not happening in a feedlot. The cows have plenty of room to roam around. Mm-hmm. You know, and on that point being that they're not in such close quarters, they don't need to use antibiotics. Uh, it's just more of a slower, more natural process. So I guess the, the tendency by far is to not have to pump those cattle full of hormones. Mm. I don't know if there's any regulation prohibiting that specifically. Mm. Um, but oftentimes you'll find, you know, an organic stamp on grass-fed beef or sometimes because those those organic labels are expensive. Sometimes a small farm can't afford them, but it's an organic product for yeah. all intents and purposes. Right, right. That's why it's it's really important to uh, really look at the sourcing of where you buy uh, your foods because these days we we vote with our dollars. We do. We, we don't vote do. for politicians. We vote f- with our dollars. The products we buy in mass and the products that we boycott are the ones that are successful and they're the ones that go bankrupt. Yeah. I and couldn't agree more. That I think it's a super big problem in politics that there is so much money in politics and that does get in the way of really um, like a true democracy system where everyone's ideas are at least considered because big money interests, of course, like uh, the farming industry and, Factory farming and all that, they obviously have very strong lobbying groups that allow them to keep doing the inhumane practices that they're doing and also pumping those cattle f- full of hormones and all this without, you know, really looking into how is this affecting humans. So we really, at the end of the day, we vote with our money. Um, and these days, if your, you know, company or business doesn't have some kind of real, like, authentic mission, or some kind of higher purpose, most people don't really care about it anymore. And I think that's a really 
uh, good development for us. All right, so so far, you've said ginseng is a go-to mm-hmm. men's health herb, and also epimedium, also known as the horny goat weed. What else yeah. we got? Well, let me let me um, say a few more things about epimedium okay. that I think are cool. Um, so modulating testosterone, stimulating the testosterone receptors. Mm-hmm. Um, it does a really fine job increasing bone density. Right. Well, testosterone in general increases right. bone density. And it also, um, epimedium also contains some phytoestrogens. So mm. I think, you know, as it was explained to me by our professor, Dr. Kalmans, it's an adaptogen for testosterone. So it's kind of, it's modulating estrogen and testosterone simultaneously. Um, and beyond it almost from, from personal experience, the libido boost is undeniable. And I would say that, you know, it's like for the increase in testosterone that it feasibly gives the boost in libido is like multiples greater. Really? Uh, and part of that has to do it's it's not necessarily well understood how it influences the nervous system, but it's one of a very, very few uh, small group of herbs that has um, the effect of promoting nerve regrowth after injury, hmm. but also just generally refurbing, refurbishing the nervous system and just uh, building integrity, um, myelination, just overall hmm. nerve strength. Um, and so then that's part and parcel to the sexual experience um, and components of fertility. Um, it's it's definitely something that lifts the mood um, by increasing catecholamines. So it does increase dopamine to a degree. It does increase epinephrine, norepinephrine, mm. um, which can be a caution for some people. It's something to be aware of. Um, but if you find that you know you're experiencing a low mood, um, you may notice some benefit with epimedium. Um, can uh, can females use epimedium or horny goat uh, horny goat weed? They absolutely can. Um, it's it's important to take into account the sort of energetic component of all of these herbs. So ginseng is is very warm um, mm-hmm. or airing on the warmer side, depending on how it's prepared. Right. So um, it would be for somebody with a more cold with constitution. A cold constitution. Cold hands and feet, they tend towards chills. Thing is, though, that ginseng is moistening. There's not really an issue of it being too drying. Mm. Epimedium is drying. Epimedium Mm. is warm and dry. So for people who have, you know, issues with dryness that are pre-existing, it it probably wouldn't be the best to recommend. Dry skin, dry mouth, things like that. And so for perimenopausal, postmenopausal women who are experiencing you know, vaginal dryness, atrophy due to a lack of estrogen, um, it it should be used with caution. Again, like I said, it has phytoestrogenic benefits as well. It's just, it's, it's really hard to tell which direction things would go in symptom wise. Right. So, um, your suggestion is that we use the herbs as they're indicated, uh, in terms of their whole effect on the energetics. Right. Um, I, I absolutely agree. And that way we don't get caught up in this. Oh, well, you know, I read this, I read this article post and it said my symptoms might be because I have low testosterone. So I'm going to find this herb that increases testosterone. I'm going to take it. It really doesn't work like that. Uh, it's not that simplistic. And I, I think that's where a lot of failures in uh, herbal medicine being proven to be effective come from is because of the intention and the ideology that goes behind how you'd use it. Mm-hmm. Like you were saying with the measuring testosterone levels, rather than doing a study of 
maybe how somebody's sexual interest is, how their muscle recovery is, things like that that are more qualitative, mm-hmm. uh, that are more something you'd fill out. Right. I mean, just about. looking at a patient's goals specifically um, versus focusing on lab results and numbers corresponding to them, which, you know, that's that's always been the domain of Western medicine. And I think, you know, we'll, we'll get into this topic momentarily, but that's one of the major benefits that natural medicine has to offer, um, you know, the world, the country, the medical system as a whole is that we're taking into account um, something that's basically pattern differentiation. Mm-hmm. So your constitution and my constitution are pretty similar, um, but, you know, we're surrounded by people who are completely different. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you you're, you find a lot of people who are self-educating, which is fantastic, um, finding all sorts of information on the internet about how ashwagandha, which is the next drug that I'm going to go into, mm-hmm. um, raises testosterone, you know, lowers cortisol, all these good things, and people you know, essentially self-diagnose and figure that they have some sort of cortisol dysregulation or low testosterone and that ashwagandha is going to be the answer to their problems when really like more diligence needs to be done and a diagnosis needs to be achieved. And beyond that, it would probably be best for their case to be handled by someone who's fluent in Western medicine and at least herbal energetics, Uh, not necessarily that they have to be a Chinese medicine practitioner or an Ayurvedic practitioner just be that they be appreciative of that because that's that's an extra hat that we can wear as practitioners to sort of guide our clinical decision making Mm -hmm. as to what the best substance would be Mm -hmm. there's this very um very elegant system that matthew wood talks about i don't know if you're familiar with him he's a western herbalist no i haven't heard of him uh it's kind of a a three a three-piece approach to how you select what herb should be used. Uh, so typically an herb is selected by most people and actually by a lot of physicians and healers is, you know, someone will say, oh, I have trouble sleeping. I have insomnia. What you got for that? And they're like, they look up the research. Oh, valerian was shown to uh, decrease um, sleep onset. So like how fast you fall asleep. So they're like, here, take valerian. Not really taking into account what are the energetics of valerian, what is it useful for, what organ systems does it support. So that's like a very, um, I feel like a very low level approach to herbalism. And it it works sometimes because those other effects are there. But the three piece approach is this. First, you consider what are the energetics of the herb? Is it heating? Is it cooling? Is it drying? Is it moistening? Is it relaxing? Is it tonifying? Et cetera, et cetera. And that's you choose an herb in that regard based on what the person needs. So if they're really, really cold and they need some heat in their in their body, um, some more movement, increased metabolic activity, you give a cold person a hot herb, etc. So that's the first piece. Second piece is location, meaning where does this herb have most of its function? Does it is it support the liver most? Does it support the lungs? Is it something that's really good for the heart? And we all know plenty of examples of herbs that are like really good for the heart, like hawthorn, herbs that are really good for the liver, like milk thistle, herbs that are just very good at anti-inflammatory, like turmeric or curcumin, things that are very specific to the immune system, elderberry, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, so that's part two. So energetics and then the location that works. And then the third part of the approach is the specific indications. 
And the specific indications are actually very much uh, alike to the kind of pattern differentiation that Chinese medicine uses. So it actually will be something like, okay, well, valerian is indicated for people that have trouble falling asleep because they're restless and they have a lot of muscle pain. And it's also somebody who uh, just tends to have a lot of muscle tension in general. And these are their symptoms. They're overactive. Um, they're, you know, too kind of restless to sleep. Um, so that's like the specific indications of valerian. So taken as like a holistic unit, we take the herb and we look at where are the energetics? So how is it moving the metaphorical energetics of the body? Where does it, what organ systems does it support? And then, uh, what are just kind of the empirical, um, observations about how the herb is to be used? Because, before there was these fancy theories of how herbs uh, were used uh, in terms of what's their mechanism of action and research, etc. People just noticed, oh, when I when a guy has a cold and I give him licorice, like it gets better. I don't know why, but it does, right? And then they that got very elaborate to, well, it's a dry cough with this and then this, right? Um, but yeah, I, I think that system is really... It has a lot uh, in relation to Chinese medicine. I think it's really cool. Um, I was speaking in the first episode with Alexander Hine on this topic, and we were kind of trying to integrate uh, Western herbs and Chinese medicine herbs. Um, that was a really long tangent, but I, I feel like it's a, it's a cool idea. So what are some more, uh, some more herbs to support men's health? We got three so far, three goodies. Well, let's. Uh, I'll talk more in detail about ashwagandha. Okay, um, let's get into ashwagandha. That's that's an Ayurvedic herb, um, and it's kind of equivalent to Panax ginseng, as Panax ginseng features in Chinese East Asian medicine. Um, so ashwagandha again, a root. Um, it is considered to be energetically warm and moistening, mm -hmm. um, but it, interestingly, it's a sedative. Um, it's relaxing. It's it's something that's used for sleep. Um, the Latin taxonomical name is Withania somnifera, so mm. it's, it's kind of implied that it would promote peaceful sleep. Um, the Sanskrit name ashwagandha basically means horse sweat or the smell of a horse. Um, but then you know that sort of implies the metaphorical understanding of ashwagandha that it's it imparts the grounded strength of specifically a stallion so a male horse um and then all the associated you know virility um imagery behind that mm. um it make you strong like horse it does and you know why because it is among you know many um mechanisms whereby this herb works so it proceed it preserves acetylcholine um, which is the parasympathetic neurotransmitter acetylcholine is also um it, it plays a large role in muscle contractions mm. um with the release of calcium ions that triggers the whole process um i have noticed that it does make you stronger physically on an acute basis mm. um it's almost i would say it's fairly equivalent to creatine for the listeners really? who are weightlifters. Yeah, it's definitely a noticeable increase. You can dose, you know, an hour and a half before a workout and notice that benefit. Um, so it is working on the cholinergic system. And then 
you know, by that logic, um, it is providing some degree of parasympathetic stimulation to the body, um, which is our rest and digest mode. Um, and if that's working optimally or more towards optimal, we'll receive, you know, benefits such as stress reduction, sleep improvement, um, greater fertility, better memory. I mean, learning is always, it's always easier in a non-stressed state, which is really ironic right. to the educational situation that I've you and I are both in. I've seen some research uh, for ashwagandha uh, being very effective in regulating the HPA axis. Yeah, um, I've seen the same. Um, is that related to the acetylcholine or is that a different mechanism? Well, who's to say? I mean, I don't know for certain. It makes sense, you know, preserving acetylcholine, um, providing that parasympathetic stimulation and having those benefits of being calm. Um, I don't know if they're particularly like reciprocal in their relationship. Mm -hmm. I mean, one thing that we notice with ashwagandha or that we've verified scientifically with ashwagandha is that it tends to lower cortisol and raise DHEA. Mm. And that's that's often the case where we see cortisol getting lower DHEA, which is kind of the, the precursor, one of the precursors to testosterone um, far up the line and estrogen too, for that matter. Um, so just generally increasing the overall anabolic capabilities of the body. Um, but then too, in a lot of cases where we decrease cortisol, our GABA will increase, which mm -hmm. isn't necessarily a parasympathetic neurotransmitter. It is relaxing. Mm -hmm. um, it causes cells to become hyperpolarized, so neuronal activity decreases because it's decreasing Alcohol the rate is of firing. Alcohol uh, yeah. is a very strong example of exactly. a GABA agonist, meaning it activates those receptors, right. so that kind of calm, um, calmness and um, loss of inhibition comes right. from GABA. Yep. And then ironically, alcohol will raise cortisol along with GABA. So that's that's really? not necessarily a congruent example. Yeah, I mean, you know, you get the benefits of GABA. That's all well and good. But for some people, like typically we're drinking, you know, later in the day. Uh, for some people, it can interrupt sleep. Other people, it's essential to fall asleep. Mm. Um, but not to digress too much. So ashwagandha has a number of effects that are physiologically pretty well measurable in terms of, as you said, um, regulating and optimizing the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access, mm -hmm. also the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal access. Mm -hmm. um, the gonads are the like ovaries, uh, testicles, etc. Right, right. Um, so those sex organs that are responsible for producing sex steroids. Mm -hmm. um, testosterone, ash estrogen. Yeah, testosterone, estrogen, estradiol being kind of the big mama. Mm -hmm. um, but as far as an herb that is very, very well verified to increase testosterone, ashwagandha would probably be the one um, hmm. because one of my favorite studies involves it being used with a number of experimental groups. Um, obviously, the format was different from each group to the other. But um, in active younger men, it was dosed for a period of you know several weeks or several months. Um, their testosterone was measured obviously at the beginning of the study and everyone was kind of determined to be within 
normal quote-unquote range. Um, so guys with, with healthy testosterone, no significant symptoms of low testosterone. And by the end of the study, I mean, this is, you know, this was to the level of high statistical significance. Um, it, the average testosterone at the end of the study was basically the upper range of normal. So about 750, 780, I think the number was. Mm -hmm. Typically when we measure testosterone, we're looking at, you know, a normal range being about 300 to 800. Mm -hmm. um, some labs will push that higher to about 1,000 or even 1,200. Um, but it's very consistent in terms of the results that it delivers. Um, and so if, and I would often recommend that people combine herbs to achieve a particular effect. So if, if one were to say, be taking ashwagandha and horny goat weed simultaneously, um, yeah, you would definitely raise your testosterone, but then you would enjoy the benefits of physiological function that kind of approximated an even higher level of testosterone feasibly. Mm. It's, I'm not making any guarantees. Um, but that's, that's kind of the synergy of herbal medicine, you know, specific to this discussion regarding men's herbs, like we're after certain things, we have certain goals with these herbs. Um, and it is definitely the case in my experience that, um, there's, there's a number of possible synergies. So that's one to contemplate. Um, and I think if we had to discuss a fourth herb for men's health, um, I would say tribulus would probably... Mm, tribulus terrestris. Yeah, yeah. So that that is both an Ayurvedic and a Chinese herb. Um, and also the... The stuff that comes from Bulgaria is actually the best studied, ironically. So really? Ayurvedic medicine and Bulgaria have no relationship that I'm aware of. <laughs> no, I'm not um, aware of one either. Maybe, maybe way back in the day um, with you know nomadic populations. Um, but anyway, so that, the, the varietal, the chemotype that comes from Bulgaria, you know, the, the Balkans and Turkey, that one seems to be the most androgenic. Um, meaning that it promotes the synthesis of male sex hormones. Uh, and mm -hmm. it's not just testosterone. It's kind of the lineage leading up to that. Um, so how does testosterone get produced? Well, it's, it's a reasonably straightforward feedback cycle um, that involves the hypothalamus, which is kind of the body's thermostat. So it mm -hmm. kind of measures where we're at in a lot of cases. Um, particularly regarding our overall hormonal status. Hmm. And so if, if something is recognized as low, um, then that's perceived by the hypothalamus, um, which then secretes you know, a number of hormones depending upon you know, what it's looking at. And then the pituitary is the next stop for the stimulus to occur. And then mm -hmm. the pituitary receives that input and then it sends a stimulus to, in this case, the gonads or the adrenals. Um, so for, for testosterone and estrogen to be produced, um, the gonads require something called luteinizing hormone, mm -hmm. LH. So that's coming directly from the pituitary. Um, and one of the things, uh, tribulus is, is well studied to increase testosterone, um, but the mechanism is pretty straightforward and well understood that it does increase luteinizing hormone. So it's not stimulating um, the testes per se directly. It's, a, it's upstream from that. Um, so in that regard, 
it, it seems to be effective over the long term. Mm-hmm. Um, there isn't really any adaptation on the part of the body, you know, with, with the cellular configuration or overall health of the testes um, that would weaken its effect over time. It's, it's one that you can take for a good long time. Um, but then another cool benefit that's becoming better and better verified and established is that tribulus actually um, upregulates the number of androgen receptors on various cells, particularly mm. in this case, um, in the brain. Right. So there's um, a way to increase the effects of testosterone, not by just increasing the right. amount of testosterone, right. but increasing the amount of receptors for testosterone. So the amount of testosterone uh, that there is, even if it remains the same, it'll be more effective because there's, it's almost like there's the same amount of basketballs, but you now have five more hoops. So it can go into more ba- uh, basketball hoops. I like your metaphor. And when they score, you got some, you got some testosterone effects and yep. those are in general good. Yeah. And then again, back to the original point that we made about you know, our culture in general and the scientific community being a bit obsessed with testosterone. If the, if the testosterone has nothing to bind to, it's not going to exert its effects. So that's right. kind of an under-recognized um, limiting factor to this whole thing is, you know, we can increase testosterone, we can um, derive similar benefits from other compounds that mimic testosterone and their effects, but then if you're just lacking in the number of receptors overall, the effectiveness of you know these all of these protocols is going to be limited to a degree. Right, and it's interesting that kind of the way the body maintains homeostasis or balance over long periods of time, uh, for somebody who's taking anabolic steroids for a while, uh, their receptors, I'm assuming, would downregulate. Their, On the hypothalamus particularly. Right. So it's like those high levels of testosterone make the body be like, whoa, whoa, pump your brakes. Like, so the body starts removing some of those basketball hoops because there's just too many basketballs going through and it's starting to alter function. And then there's um, a fascinating rebound effect when someone who's been cycling on steroids for a long time suddenly goes off. That system doesn't know how to function. Yeah, that system basically isn't there anymore. Because it basically got shut down. Yep. uh, because something else was doing its job. So the body was basically, oh, we don't really need you. You go home. Like, um, you know, you don't work for us anymore. Yeah, and it's hard to recover that. I mean, it is possible. Um, and, you know, if, if there are listeners who have experience using anabolic steroids, um, I wouldn't say it's necessarily, and I have no firsthand experience myself, disclaimer. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's not really something that we've experimented with as a scientific community if, you, that testosterone deficiency can be recovered with herbal supplementation. Mm. Um, you know, that's definitely an avenue possibly for future research, how herbs would benefit people who have created a testosterone deficiency, mm. hypogonasm secondary to anabolic steroid right. use. And luckily for some people, the system comes back into play after yeah. you give it a good rest. Right. Sometimes uh, it just takes time. Like uh, women who use... Uh, contraceptives, right. oral contraceptives, they're basically just taking estrogen. So when they go off of these pills, and I, I've heard uh, a lot of my classmates uh, speaking about them going off of um, contraceptives, uh, oral contraceptives, and they their menstrual cycles were irregular for months after. Um, so your body kind of becomes dependent on these chemicals, and when you take them away, 
all of a sudden everything's in dysregulation. Now, do you, that brings up kind of the point for me is, do you think that these herbs can be used um, to the detriment of our natural systems? Like, let's say you just are constantly taking ginseng, you're constantly taking horny goat weed, etc. Can that actually lead to negative effects if you suddenly stop taking it? I don't think so. I mean, I I don't necessarily have any research data to back this up. Um, so I'm just speaking from personal experience. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm pretty much a daily user of herbs. I cycle them. Me too, yeah. Um, because the concept of adaptation, I, I'm generally a believer in, even if it's herbal substances. Um, generally speaking, because we're talking about herbs that contain dozens of active compounds. Right. So it's, it's much more difficult for the body to become adapted and tolerant of, you know, 30, 40, 50 different chemicals versus just one isolated substance like you would find in pharmaceutical medicine. Like testosterone cyprianate is what people inject, you know, for sports performance or testosterone replacement therapy. Um, that's, that's a one-dimensional um, sort of intervention, whereas with herbs... You know, you have so much going on. Yeah, it, it doesn't really make sense that the body would be able to adapt to that as quickly. Um, it may happen. But I would say that, you know, from my experience, the biggest detriment of taking too many, and these herbs are generally referred to as tonics, so you're tonifying, you're fortifying the body. You can certainly over-tonify, um, and that's recognized in Chinese medicine pretty clearly. Um, so they're kind of supporting the function rather than forcing it. They can, and they can over support it. Mm -hmm. You can, you know, like the example that you brought up with taking too many ginseng, what I've experienced is insomnia. That's, mm, that's my experience too, yeah. of overdoing, um, these particular herbs that I mentioned and others, ashwagandha, not so much that does really help nicely with sleep. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, you can, you can definitely overdo it. These are stimulating. They're really stimulating like the most basic life force, um, and so again, on that, on that point, um, I would recommend experimenting with these herbs by taking them earlier in the day because they generally mm -hmm. have an energizing effect. Um, so just if, if you're going to experiment, I would do so in the morning with mm -hmm. dosage. But yeah, in terms of you know, the, the most tangible um, issue that's come up with my own supplementation has been sleep interruption to mm -hmm. a degree. Mm. Yeah, those the neurotransmitters and our hormones uh, are very interrelated. And in fact, there's a very interesting field of study called uh, neuroendocrine immunology, and sometimes they tag in other things in there. Uh, basically, the whole idea of it is every system in our body is very closely connected. So when you alter your hormones, that will affect your sleep patterns um, and things of that nature. Um, as far as the men's health herbs that I really like, just to throw in a few more into the mix, if anyone's still listening. <laughs> um, one of my favorites is uh, rhodiola. That's uh, considered to be adaptogenic herb. And basically, uh, research shows that it increases endurance. It uh, decreases the body's kind of crumbling under stress, like when someone's under a very high stress situation, whether that's physical, emotional, or mental, rhodiola is one of the quickest acting uh, herbs for being able to do that. Uh, actually, 
it's able to in, increase endurance and things like that within 30 minutes of taking it. So that's that's pretty amazing. Um, as far as um, men's health also, things like saw palmetto is very commonly used, especially for all things to do with uh, the prostate glands and things like BPH where the prostate gland kind of grows uh, size. And that's an interesting one because I believe uh, that has something to do with DHT and how, um, how testosterone is turned in DHT. And DHT, um, I forget actually what it exactly stands for. It's some kind of testosterone. It's dihydrotestosterone. Right. So it's got two hydrogens on okay, it. Okay, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah, so that form of testosterone is actually way more uh, potent than other forms of testosterone. So males who have uh, BPH, often they have very high levels of DHT, and that's causing you know their prostate gland to grow out of size and having all sorts of hormonal effects. Um, and salt palmetto is one of those that is very commonly used for that. Um, I love ashwagandha. That's probably one of my favorite, uh, just overall tonifying, supporting herbs. Um, what else is a good? You know, it's it's interesting too from a kind of um, philosophical point of view how you use herbs because um, obviously because our hormones are so. Uh, related to our mental state and how we feel that someone who's having, let's say a guy who's having low sex drive, low libido, um, poor recovery, poor endurance, the cause of that on the, on the very surface, it might be, oh, he has low testosterone or something. But the question is what's causing that low testosterone? Maybe it's low testosterone because he's not eating well. Maybe it's low because he's not sleeping and recovering well. So there's other approaches to men's health and women's health other than just throwing phytoestrogens and phytoandrogens at them. Although it does treat the most obvious manifest issue, you know, if if they have low testosterone because they only sleep three hours a night, it's not really the best approach. Maybe you should give them an herb that helps them sleep. So that's kind of a philosophical point about men's health is it really depends how you're going to treat it. So we went through a lot of really good men's health herbs. Um, Love this stuff. So as promised, um, a lot of people in the field of alternative healthcare are unsuccessful in their business goals. I've heard of many uh, classmates and people who graduated before from our school, like National University of Natural Medicine or acupuncture schools. A few years down the line, they're not even working in the healthcare field anymore. They're doing something completely different. Um, and in a lot of cases, they that wasn't by choice. Why do you think that people in our field of medicine, in holistic medicine, um, are unsuccessful in starting their practice and finding a way to make money? I'm hesitant to answer that question because I don't have a lot of firsthand experience. I've been in private practice for only a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and my practice has grown in that span of time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still a medical student, um, so I don't really have as many hours. Well, I don't have nearly enough hours to commit to that. Um, that would make it a full-time job. Mm. Um, but as far as you know, the year that's passed, I recognize that I've made you know, quite a few mistakes and I've done a few things right. I think um, what I'm happiest with in terms of what I would consider a success or at least, you know, universal advice that I can uh, pass along to the listeners is that my original plan was to uh, limit my financial liability as much as I could. 
Mm. And thankfully, acupuncture is a pretty high revenue business in comparison to what typical overhead is. Mm. So an acupuncture needle literally costs pennies. Um, like an acupuncture needle is about two cents. So to put in 20 needles into a patient is about 40 cents worth That's of nothing. materials. It's nothing. I mean, in comparison to what other medical procedures cost, especially when you have you know single-use items factor in, um, you're spending a lot of money. And acupuncture is a lot of, it's literally a lot of bang for the buck um, that I can treat, you know, all variety of internal medicine issues, mood disorders, sleep problems, um, and last but certainly not least, musculoskeletal uh, issues, you know, for less than 50 cents with, Mm. you know, pertaining to a typical patient. Um, That's a lot. And so what I've sort of um, gathered together as a typical statistic from other acupuncture practitioners, 20% in terms of overhead is pretty doable when you have a fully functional five-day-a-week full-time practice. Do you mean 20% of your profit is going to funding Well, revenue. Business? So your, your profit, I mean... You could think of it in a couple of ways, but typically the the verbiage that's used is revenue. So the revenue is coming from insurance billings or the cash for services that you receive from patients. It's, it's whatever. It's the totality of your income, and then a percentage of that, you know, gets taken away by rental costs or malpractice insurance, just mm-hmm. basically stuff that you have to pay for on a daily or a monthly basis to have your business function as it needs to. So. That's, that's kind of the golden number that I strive for. Um, I'm not there yet. And, and typically what you see is overhead will go down as a percentage as your revenue increases. Hmm. So if I were working five days a week or if I were working 60 hours a week as opposed to 40 hours a week as opposed to 20 hours a week, um, overhead would be highest, you know, working fewer hours. Right, because you still have to, unless you're renting per hour your office, you still kind of pay almost like a flat fee and yeah i mean for everything a lot of that you earn above that it's almost like the costs are somewhat limited uh they can only it can only cost so much money to run the business but your profit can expand far greater than what it costs right to expand and it. so if my if my monthly overhead is which i'll give you the figure now mm-hmm. um and i i have very very few expenses it's about it's less than $400 a month. I'm renting a space wow. two days out of the week. Yeah, this is including... That's incredibly little. It's incredibly low. It's, this is inclusive of website, of malpractice insurance, wow. of office supplies, acupuncture needles, rent, cleaning supplies, everything taken into consideration. Wow. Um, that's really good, man. That's on a monthly basis. And then my startup costs were about $4,400. Okay. So incorporate... It just you know, all sorts of fees for licenses. And I'm, I'm taking into consideration my licenses, um, board certifications, all that costs mm-hmm. money. Now, depending upon how you format your company, um, and a lot of, and we're, we're generally advised, um, within our business curriculum to go with the LLC format. Mm-hmm. So I would, I would support that. I think it was a smart decision on my part because mm-hmm. I did get a nice fat tax write off. Right. Um, for my initial costs. And then, or actually that was, no, the $4,400, I misspoke. That was um, my cost to run the business from 
October of 2018 until the first of the year. So it was startup cost plus a few months. Oh, okay. Uh, and that was a tax write-off for me. So basically that negated other income. It reduced my overall income by whatever it was, about $4,400. Mm. Um, so you pay less in taxes if your LLC is set up as a pass-through entity. Um, if you take on a business partner, then by default, it's going to be a partnership LLC. Um, and then in that case, you get a pass-through event where all losses can end up offsetting your personal income tax. Really? Which is very, very cool. Yeah. Mm. Um, and there are other ways. And the, the other cool thing about, well, there's a lot of cool things about LLCs, but one in particular is that you can elect taxation status if you have a partner. Um, a lot of people will found an LLC and they'll do so without a business partner. And then it's what's called a single member LLC or a disregarded entity. Um, and you don't receive, you're missing out on a lot of LLC benefits that are potentially there with a partner, um, especially increased legal protection. Mm. But then too, from a financial standpoint, you could set up an LLC as an S corp or elect S corp taxation status. Mm. You can elect C corp taxation status. Mm. It all kind of depends on your business goals. Um, and so really, so that's, that's the kind of shell, um, that wraps my business and it affords me certain benefits and protections. Um, and then it kind of guides the the overall financial strategy. And you know, at a certain point, I might change the taxation status. Um, but let me talk about the the biggest barrier to growth uh, in terms of my patient base, and mm -hmm. then you know, by extension, the revenue. Um, we're in Portland, Oregon here, which is I I can't think of another part of the country um, where natural medicine has a stronger foothold. Mm -hmm. This is this is kind of the hotbed of naturopathic, of acupuncture and Chinese medicine. Absolutely. Basically all the quote unquote complementary modalities. Right. So um, it's very dense here also it's very because dense. of that. Yeah. So you could obviously we have to succeed in business so that we can support ourselves and then the benefit to society is a healthier population mm -hmm. um so really that should motivate our business savvy our, more than uh, anything and our professions in continuing right. this tradition of natural healing mm -hmm. um, but then too looking at you know the portland metro area for instance mm -hmm. it is a marketplace you know there's mm -hmm. a there's a finite number of people who live within you know, the incorporated city limits of Portland and then the outlying towns, et cetera. And, and, and in addition to that, you know, it is a growth area. So there's a certain number of people moving here on the day statistically that we're aware of. Um, but also too, it's, it's growing in terms of the number of healthcare providers out here. We have one of the best known naturopathic medical schools. We have a number of schools teaching acupuncture and Chinese herbs. You know, are we, are there more as a percentage naturopaths and acupuncturists ending up in Portland after their studies, you know, outpacing population growth as a percentage? Are there 6% more naturopaths per annum in the Portland mm. metro area? Are there 2%? What's the population growth of the metro area? Is it 4%? Is it 6%? So, you know, ultimately, what is the supply and demand issue? Um, but then back to my original point, like it is the foothold for natural medicine. And then to, to look at it 
you know, strictly from a business standpoint, it's about the most saturated marketplace as you can find mm. in North America for natural so medicine. So it has its benefits and downsides. Right. So natural medicine is well known and it's sought out. But right. For new guys like us, um, you know, it's not really so much of an issue of competition as finding savvy ways to provide people with care. But being junior practitioners, like if you have decades of experience in the field, people are going to come to you first. They're going to come to you first and they're going to be willing to pay cash for services. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, a lot of cash based acupuncture and naturopathic practices that have been established for a long time, um, or the majority of cash based practices, I should say, have that long track record, almost a legacy even. Mm. Um, Taking insurance versus not taking insurance is a pretty significant moral, philosophical debate ongoing between practitioners. Um, I have turned away probably, or not turned away, 80% of my prospective patients have elected not um, to schedule on a regular basis, so just kind of on a one-off basis. Um, because I'm cash based at the moment, mm. I'm, I'm starting to get, um, credentialed with a few, um, insurance panels. Um, but that's, that's a slow process. It is however, really worthwhile because now I can receive more and more patients because they are, um, I can take their insurance plans or I will soon be able to. Mm. So it's more paperwork involved. There's no guarantee that you'll get reimbursed. Um, and it's, it's just generally a headache to deal with insurance companies. Right. I mean, in, uh, health insurance, uh, insurance companies and the system of healthcare, uh, they suffer a lot, a lot of conventional docs. They're kind of trapped in this, uh, system of insurance of five minute visits and all of that. It's not, um, by a lot of doctors choices that they practice the way they do. It's by, how insurance works, how they get reimbursed. And hospital administration. And hospital administration. That's probably the worst offender. Absolutely. So the kind of big takeaway that I'm hearing from you is find some kind of, if you are a, you know, a natural healer and you want to be successful and you know, make a living uh, doing what you love, you need to find some kind of uh, procedure or technique or something that you can do that has low overhead, meaning it doesn't cost you much to do it, like let's say a massage or something like that, or physical medicine or acupuncture. Basically doing something that doesn't you know, cost you a lot of money, like buying a lot of herbs and then reselling them to a person. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if that should necessarily dictate the modalities that you gravitate to or, or employ on a regular basis. I would just advise people to think critically about the ways in which off the bat they can reduce their financial liability. If it's working, if it's renting space one day a week, then two days a week, then three days a week as their schedule fills up, as opposed to just signing a lease for right. five or seven buying days a, a week. Buying a clinic for 200 grand of and, loan money. And no one's yeah. there. I mean, you have no patients, but you have rent that's $1,500 a month as opposed to $300 a month. That's a big you're difference. Two as opposed to five days or seven days out of the week. So take um, it slow, baby steps. Yeah, take it slow. I mean, realistically, you might have to find another job to support yourself as your practice grows. Right. Like I, I trade stocks. I invest probably about 20 hours a week doing that. Mm-hmm. 
um, and I'm to the point where it is, it's basically a job in terms of financial um, remuneration, mm-hmm. um, drive Uber, you know, mm-hmm. bartend. I mean, and also too, think about when your patients are likely to come in. You know, people generally don't want to take off from work to see a provider. So uh, advice that's been given to me pretty consistently is, especially in the early stages, be willing to work the off hours, be willing to work weekends, be willing to work afternoons and evenings, as opposed to thinking of this as something that'll be a nine to five Monday through Friday job right off the bat. Being an entrepreneur is a 24-7 job, really. Uh, If you're starting your own business, you want to work for yourself. Um, A lot of people also want to do that. And there is that element of uh, competition and there is that element of you know you need people to see you as somehow unique or different because at the end of the day somebody who wants coffee doesn't buy coffee from the grocery store they buy coffee from the best coffee shop in town right or the best grocery store in town or the best grocery store in town but in general if like if you and me were like hey let's go grab coffee we wouldn't like you know, go to New Seasons to get coffee. That would be kind of strange. We would go to the coffee shop over here. Um, well, it, the frugal ones would absolutely. <laughs> He's just I'm, I'm faces pointing at to myself that yeah. I actually would go to New Seasons. I think they have great. Coffee, I do too. So. But the the general person um, seeks for specialties, and that's why the specialty system is such a big thing in conventional medicine. Is because when somebody has a heart problem, they go to the cardiologist. Right. They don't go to the general practice. So I think. That's the biggest takeaway that I've heard from a lot of uh, naturopathic physicians and Chinese medicine doctors is they need to find their own place and what makes them unique and uh, and focus on that because then you can become very good uh, at, at what you do rather than just doing a little bit of everything and not being that good. Focus on one area, find find your market, find your people that you want to help and put your energy in that and make sure you don't you know go in too deep money-wise right away and get an accountant maybe and a lawyer and this whole business thing is incredibly complex and there's no really one source to find all your information so a mentor is everything yeah i mean that's mentor that's one of the things that we lack and i'm sure you know a lot of the listeners you know who i presume to be students at our school or similar schools um it's it's a confusing jungle out there in terms of you know, step by step, what we have to do, right. the licensing process, mm-hmm. the credentialing process, getting an NPI number. Um, I feel like that's where our education, one of the areas where it's been deficient is just providing us with a clear roadmap in terms of, you know, what we can be doing now mm. to um, sort of improve the footing that we enter the, the world of private practice in on. Um, and also just, you know, how, how our ducks have to be ordered in a row come graduation day. Right. Yeah. And with, as with all things start early, cause these, these cogs take a long time to turn. So I think from what I've seen with, um, people who weren't successful within a short period of time and kind of went on to do other things as a kind of, you know, cause you know, their clinic wasn't making money is they, did not start early enough. They waited until they were already graduated to start, you know, figuring out who their patients are and who they are and what they're going to do and develop skills and market themselves. And they, they're starting um, a process that takes many years to become successful. So um, 
So yeah, I think, you know, even having like a side job while you get really nice and started is a great idea, especially if it's within the field and you're gaining experience. I right. think that would be ideal. Um, some people uh, can jump right into it though and be successful. Who knows? What I do know for sure is that there is an incredibly high demand of people for natural holistic medicine because it works. Um, and the question for us as practitioners, at the end of the day, all profit aside, all idea of a business aside is we're trying to get our healing to people. And this is the way you do it by, you know, having a business that funds itself by having employees, et cetera, et cetera. It's incredibly difficult to actually help people without these structures in place. So I like to view it in a more positive light rather than a uh, just trying to make money or something like that. Money is just a tool to your goal. The goal is to heal, at least for me. And the more successful your business is, the more you can actually do your goal. So everyone's goal, uh, in my opinion, should be success. And part of that is financial. And I know within our profession specifically, uh, naturopathic medicine, there's a lot of kind of hesitancy around money and kind yeah. of a feeling like it's there's something like, evil or inherently yeah. wrong about making a profit I and that. Th I think that is the one thing to look into is everyone deserves money for what they do if they do it well uh, because money is just a symbolic representation of value so what someone says when they say something like oh I don't want to make money I'm not interested in money in a way they're saying that they don't value their own services enough to think that Someone who is doing this or that work can get paid, but not me because this is different. You know, it's not different. Money is the way that we, you know, live somewhere, that we have food, that we're able to enjoy our lives, that we're able to travel. I mean, what kind of physician wouldn't be benefited from being able to travel the world, from being able to buy any book that they like so they can study more, to having enough money where they don't have to worry about food, to having enough money where they can eat organic because that's expensive. So those are all things to consider. And personally, I had a big kind of like block, I feel like internally towards making a profit and things like that. But as my kind of idea around it changed, I uh, realized, you know, you want your business to be successful. And part of that is financial. And if that's not considered, it just won't be successful. Right. It'll just be random. So um, thank you for uh, thank you for coming on here. Yeah, anytime, man. Pleasure and thank you guys for uh, listening to Herbal Hour, the home of holistic medicine, where we talk about herbalism. This episode, we covered a lot of great stuff about men's health, herbs, some business tips, and all the goodies. So thank you so much for listening, guys. Um, we're obviously on iTunes. You might be listening to this on iTunes Podcasts, or you might be listening to it on herbalhour.podbean.com. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at naturopathic. N-A-T-U-R-O-P-A-T-H-I-C dot life. Um, always sharing free information, educational. My, my goal with this podcast right from the very beginning is to develop a platform for people to really discuss and progress holistic medicine, herbalism, um, Chinese medicine, all these alternative practices because there really isn't that much talk about it going on between professionals. Um, and you know, that's, it's incredibly helpful for people to know what this medicine is all about and what we're trying to do. So that's the main reason for this podcast. Um, this is the, it's the media of the future, um, podcasting, free form conversation, 
where you can just sit down and have a unedited conversation. That's the future. You know, fake news is rampant. So these days we got to keep it real. So we're always keeping it real and genuine here at Herbal Hour. Thanks again for listening, guys. Much love.